DJ Simulationistas, sup, with Dr. D, Dan Raymer, and Dr. J, Janice Palaganis, coming at you from the Center for Medical Simulation in Boston, Massachusetts. So buckle up your mannequin, and let's roll. Welcome to DJ Simulationista Sup. You're here with Janice Palaganis and Dan Raymer. If you are listening, you need to get out of your vacationing and retirement and join us back in this recording studio because you are missing out, my friend. You are missing out on all these interesting people that we have. Today, we have Angela Aristido with us. Um, Angela is an assistant professor of organization studies at Warwick Business School in England. Angela, it's so great to have you here with us. Um, she received her PhD in management from the University of Cambridge and her master's from Harvard, where she worked with the Center for Medical Simulation for a bit of time during that time. Um, and she's worked and consulted to a number of organizations across three continents, including NASA and Oxford University. And she spent the last decade conducting research in the context of health services, how to deliver the best care possible under the best conditions for both patients and practitioners. Angela, it's uh, great to have you here with us today at the Center for Medical Simulation. Pleasure is all mine. Um, so I would, I, I would love if you can let our listeners know what you do. And then I'm going to ask you some questions about how it relates to what we do in simulation and debriefing and interprofessional education. And I'm thinking there will be strong ties around interprofessional education. So that might be our focus. So I'm a researcher. I'm an assistant professor in a business school of all settings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but empirically, I study healthcare services. Okay. And I care about how different occupations and professions come together to deliver excellent care to the same patient. I look at how they collaborate over time, when things go well and when things don't go well. And I try to understand why they didn't go so well. I try to learn from those cases. Uh-huh. What, what have you learned? Because I think this is right along the line around... Um, interprofessional education. So with interprofessional education, the ultimate goal is collaboration with the ultimate goal of, of patient safety, which I think is is why you're in this field. I think that's why we're all in this field. And our thought is the precursor to collaboration is education on how to collaborate because we often graduate nurses, physicians, all the different professions without really teaching them how to work together. And then they enter the hospital setting, and then they suddenly need to know how to work together. Mm -hmm. And I think the other thing that is so interesting is, as a preceptor in the clinical setting with supervisors, often the student will go to the supervisor, and let's say the medical uh, resident will go to their chief resident, and then the chief resident and the supervisor have, have it out, and not the actual people. And these are skills that they should be building to be able to collaborate. 
Yes, so um, as you just said, there are functional silos and there are also occupational silos and it all comes back to how these people become uh, experts in their field. How do we train them? When you train someone to be an expert in their field, do you also train them to be good at collaborating with other people in other fields that they have to collaborate with in real life? Or do you create this artificial environment where I am the best at the world in the world at chopping off the right leg, but I wouldn't be able to communicate that to anyone, which is not what we want. <laughs> so um, what I saw in a study that I did at the University of Cambridge in England, mm-hmm. where I did my PhD, I did a study um, on handovers. Specifically, I was interested in when young patients turn 17 and suddenly they have to be transferred to the adult services. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them at that point, um, following the gap, Mm -hmm. they're lost. Nobody knows what happens to them. They go to different services. They try out different things. And somehow the continuity of care disappears. So I was trying to understand at that point why. Why do these young people not go through from the children's service to the adult service smoothly as they should. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what I discovered had to do exactly with the type of training we give to professionals. Professionals who are trained to deal with children don't necessarily communicate the needs and the requirements and the plan for this patient to the professionals who are trained to deal with adults Mm -hmm. with the same condition. And isn't that so interesting? They, they're all psychiatrists in my case, yeah. but the ones that focus on adolescents would not necessarily look at the same things that the ones that focus on adults would, and they wouldn't communicate those things forward, Yeah, even within the same area. Is it really that different? I mean, I would think that there's a spectrum of what you look for in adolescent uh, populations. Um, you know, like with every age that they mature, that now you're going to be looking for something else. And wouldn't, at the end of that spectrum, when they're in their teens, wouldn't it overlap a little bit with what they would look at with adults? That is a very rational assumption. (laughs) (laughs) And um, when I asked myself the same question, what I realized was that the specialists who were focusing on children had a broader view of what care for the patient means. Mm -hmm. They saw the patient's care as extending into the community of the patient. They saw the family, the friends, the whole network of support for the patient as a resource. And they leveraged that beautifully. Mm -hmm. When you cross over to the adult services, their mentality was, this is Jane, and Jane is my patient, and I have nothing to do with anyone else in Jane's environment. I see Jane for an hour every week, and this is the person I'm interacting with. That is so interesting. So it goes back again to the point you made about education. I think that the greatest challenge for educating doctors of the future, or not just doctors, any health professional in the future, will be to educate them to function in a community setting. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of the services that we are offering in healthcare are moving more and more towards a community setting. Mm-hmm. either for financial reasons or because of patient choice. Both of them are very valid concerns. Mm-hmm. And they are pushing, for that reason, towards a more community-based care model. Mm-hmm. 
if you consider that as the future of healthcare provision, what can we do working backwards to train our healthcare professionals to be the best they can and to do the best they can in this new setting? Yeah. No, I love that perspective because preventive medicine, preventative medicine is so important to patient safety in that if your patients are safer coming into the system, they're going to be safer leaving. And if they have good support systems going into a healthcare system, then they will have a good system leaving. And at the same time, you're not just educating the patient, you have to educate all those people that would support the care. Precisely. Which which I have found to be the difference between U.S. healthcare um, and at least I, I did a master's thesis on um, the United States versus um, the uh, Filipino healthcare system. And so in the Philippines, they're very focused on uh, family care. And when the family's in the hospital with the patient, they let them get the water, they let them give some of the medications, they let them do the procedures in the hospital because they know once the patient goes home, they're going to be doing the care for them. And then you don't see these recurrent rates of patients being readmitted, readmitted, because they don't have that um, skill level at home. That is That sounds fascinating. That sounds fascinating. It sounds very relevant to what I see now as a trend in the UK as well. Mm-hmm. Um, more and more, it is expected that uh, the community will do more of the caring. The way things are, both politically and economically, I would expect this to be a trend that we see more of in the future. How would you suggest groups, because I think not only is your example um, relevant to healthcare systems, I think it's also relevant to different professions. So the adolescent care to me um, could be an analogy to you know social work and other professions that look at the whole uh, support system of the patient. Um, whereas the adult care would be, you know, the special specialized medicine or specialized units. How do you suggest bridging that gap? So I did see a model that worked very well in one of the cases that I looked at in the UK. What they had developed was an interprofessional forum mm-hmm. where for every case of patient transitioning from children's service to the adult service, they would have a forum, a meeting in which they would involve all the professionals from the children's service and the adult service and decide on what are the next steps, how does this transition happen, um, at which point do we hand over, what are the key things that shouldn't be missed. Uh, so it's a transition team? Yes. Or, oh, that's and they involved the patient's families. Mm-hmm. They involved uh, oh. from the school, sometimes people from the school, like uh, teachers and other professionals from the social services sometimes, Mm -hmm. those cases had a higher rate of success in the sense that continuity of care was achieved over a longer period of time. We have um, transition of care simulations in the field, and a lot of it is um, looking at uh, running a simulation throughout the healthcare system. So it could be from pre-hospital to um, emergency or, you know, whatever. It could be pre-hospital transport to emergency to surgery to OR, you know, all the way through um, and run a a case all the way through. And 
how would you recommend for the people that do that to best structure something like that? Like what teaching points would you place in? I would focus on the aspect of teaming. This notion that... With Amy Edmondson? Yes, okay. Amy Edmondson's work. I think that captures a lot of the, um, of the interesting points and the challenges people in that setting are facing. So with, with teaming, the point is not to have stable teams that might know each other over a period of time and get to know each other's preferences or weaknesses or way of working. Uh, with teaming, the focus is on clarifying and communicating what it is that you need from your perspective to get out of this meeting, what it is you can offer in exchange, mm -hmm. and how do we move forward towards a common goal. Very cool. Very practical, very precise, and it fits very well with the healthcare context. If those skills and behaviors are taught to our professionals and they are able to use them during the transition, I think that that would be a great, uh, a great outcome for everybody involved. What other findings have you found in your research when it comes to different... It sounds like you do inner department or inner hospital, inner systems. Yes, okay. I, I focus more... The interpersonal is always there. There's no way of getting around that. Mm -hmm. Even though I do look at teams and occupations and um, sometimes professions... I always somehow so, end up looking at interactions between individuals. I have to ask you this, because it's been driving me... Uh, I've had this conversation with other people, and, and I think you are, like, the best person to have this conversation with. I feel like a human being is a human being, and the human... Per, like, the differences in personalities and frustrations and quirks, you're going to see in every profession, no matter where. Mm-hmm. And... And so the question becomes, well, uh, at least the response I've, I've gotten from other people is, well, I believe in self-selection of careers. And so you oh, have gosh. tendency of quirks <laughs> and tendency of frustrations in one profession. Do you believe in that? To some extent, yes. But yes, to some extent, it is true that I have also observed that there is some, some degree of self-selection and there's also some degree of indoctrination. Uh -huh. So once you have selected to be an anesthesiologist, for whatever reason you reach that decision at that point in your life, you go through the training within a community of practice of anesthesiology and that builds more character into whatever it is you brought to the table initially. Uh -huh. So it is both nature and nurture as well. I don't think, though, that that is um, in any way indicative of the fact that we shouldn't give a whole pass to certain specialties or professions just because of that. Everybody can change. If you look at other professions, say fighter pilots or even aviation pilots or professions that used to think of themselves as uh, infallible at some point in time. And through what we know now about safety and about technology and about training, we have we have seen a huge change in how these professions perceive themselves and how they present themselves mm -hmm. and how they welcome criticism and feedback 
and they rely more on checklists and they try to improve their communication skills over time. So, yeah, I don't think we should give a whole pass to anyone. Well, so on that note, I have one more question. (laughs) Go ahead. I often struggle with talking about stereotypes because it's the very stereotype I want to break down. And by simply stating it, I wonder if I'm reaffirming reaffirming it. And I think it's interesting because... You know, here at CMS, we've done uh, what we call the personalysis, where we've done personality uh, um, assessments on each other. And I found that very helpful in terms of our teamwork to be able to name, you got to get more concrete here, you you know, I want to see some steps. So, you know, they'll, they'll name the stereotype. And that's, to me, very helpful in the teamwork because I realize where I'm falling short and I can, you know... Um, contribute more but I'm afraid to do that when I'm in the clinical environment to be like you're being too much of a physician right now like I'm not going to say that or too much of a surgeon you know I I don't want to name the stereotype what do you think about that on the one hand if you're using the stereo if you're using that analysis you said personalysis if you're using that analysis as um, a self-reference point Mm -hmm. or a diagnostic tool Mm -hmm. It's much different than if you're using it as an assessment tool. Mm-hmm. So if you're using it as a, as a diagnostic tool, which is for you to know for yourself, to have the language, to be able to grasp certain parts of your personality, as far as I'm concerned, that's fine because it's up to you how you use it. But if somebody else is using it as an assessment tool on you, that is where I would feel uncomfortable. And that's what we see a lot of in organizations. In team theory, there's the Belkin uh, questionnaire. You might not know about it. What it does is that it categorizes people through a series of questions in various roles. Mm -hmm. The assumption is that if you belong to uh, a team, there should be people from all these different roles in the same team. So when I'm thinking about putting a team together, I would think, well, I want Janice because she falls in this role. But I also want someone who is in the other role and the other role and the other role. So I get a well-balanced team. If that is the way that you're using it as a manager, as a leader in that context, then um, it might mean that you get better performing teams. That's the theory behind it. Right. So if you have people from different roles in a team, you get better performing teams because they're better balanced. But we all know that real life doesn't work like that. Right. Because even though these people might belong to those roles, they don't necessarily get along with one another. Right. Maybe they don't even like one another. Right. Maybe people who have a history of working together are better able to work even though they don't occupy all the roles you would want to see in the team. If as a manager, I'm using this as a diagnostic tool to guide my decisions about whom do I get to put on the team... That's fine, but I also need to be uh, realistic and keep my eyes open and make sure that it doesn't, it does not become the purpose in itself. It doesn't become a way to assess the team. I understand. Yeah. Focus on the things that you care about. So, in your example, um, you said you wouldn't want to call someone you're being too much of a surgeon. How would you feel if you said to someone you're being too commanding? Right, that's exactly what I feel like I would be saying. If yes. I, well, I mean, probably not commanding, but yes, I would be saying something 
not so nice. Yes. <laughs> if I were if I were to use a stereotype, it would be the stereotype, which in my mind most stereotypes are not that attractive or pleasing. I would Some just are. avoid it. I would just avoid it. We have to um if we want to give feedback to one another, we might as well follow the feedback process, focus on what outcome you would expect to see in that situation and instead what outcome you got, try to figure out ways to make it work better, Jenny Rudolph's work. Labeling someone in one way or another makes them defensive Mm -hmm. and maybe even entrenching them that notion that this is who I am and this is how I am anyways, might as well embrace it. Yeah, in reinforcing the stereotype. Exactly. Yeah, so interesting. Well, thank you so much, Angela. This is like brain candy for me, so glad we could find some time. I hope you found it interesting. (laughs) It was uh, questions I haven't answered in a long time, so (laughs) it did... uh, It's definitely interesting. Ask Yeah, it made me think as well. Thank you so much for that. (laughs) DJ Simulationistas, what's up? Is brought to you by the Center for Medical Simulation. Find out more about CMS and learn about our simulation instructor training and course offerings at www.harvardmedsim.org. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.